Today on Fuzzy Logic, we're talking sea slugs, guppies, mosquitoes. We're going to be moshing in the mosh pit, talking some EPO, and also looking at chemicals as food. All this and more coming up today for your science on a Sunday here on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX 98.3 FM Community Radio, where today we've got a whole lot of science lined up for you, and uh, a whole lot of people in the studio too this morning, which is fantastic to have so many new people here on Fuzzy joining me. Uh, my name's Broderick, it's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, starting from my left today, we're going to welcome Martha. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, how are you? Good, good. Now we're going to be talking food today, Martha, later yep. on this afternoon, so I want to know, what's your favourite food? I do like fruit, so I might say fruit salad, or in particular, watermelon or pineapple. Pineapple, yeah. Mm. Pineapple's good. Pineapple is good. Very good for you. Um, All right, we'll go around the room now, and uh, next in line is Sian. Good morning, Sian. Morning, Brad. Fantastic to have you here. Now, what's your favourite food, Sian? You know, I really have to say lasagna's right up there, but you can't go past chocolate either. Definitely, definitely. And I'd be a bit wary. Of, well, in Australia, I think we're all right with the lasagna, but um, over in Germany at the moment, you're getting the pony lasagna, which uh, oh, there is you a go. bit more interesting. That's I, I'm not sure about horse meat. Have no. you considered it no, before? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's awkward looks on the faces of my down here. Yeah, I don't blame you. Although I was reading that um, specialty meat stores have found that there's an increase in the number of people ordering horse meat ever since it got into like the Tesco and that sort of thing quite bizarre. Anyway, we should introduce our um, last person joining us in the studio today. Welcome along, Dan. Thanks, Brian. How are you doing? Good. I'm well, mate. Um, do you enjoy horse meat? Well, no, I'm actually a vegetarian, but I was reading this morning that the supply is there, the demand is there in Canberra, but they can't get the supply of horse meat to meet, to meet it. Interesting. Well, what is your favourite food then? Um, probably since five years old, my favourite food has been apricots. Um, we, were in, we were in Adelaide for six weeks and picked our own and I had a whole case by myself in a wow. day Yeah, as a five-year-old. How did you feel afterwards? Fine. My mother thought I was going to explode, but um, <laughs> yeah, had no yeah. issues whatsoever. Oh, good. So. Good. I'm glad to hear. I'm glad yeah. to hear. Um, well, I must say my favourite food, I think, is Turkish Delight. I enjoy a very good Turkish delight. And um, recently, uh, well, not recently, a few years ago, I discovered that it was the rose rose um, jelly and the rose water that was doing it and have since discovered all these fantastic things you can have with rose water. Some amazing cocktails and that sort of thing that people have made for me. Lovely stuff. I once had um, rose tea. Ooh. Yeah, rose garden tea. It was very, very nice, nice here in yeah. Canberra. First tea for Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's very tasty. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we're going to be talking food later on today. And if we're actually going to be talking about someone who started eating chemicals as food. And it's going to be really interesting. And I'd love to know what you think about that. So if you are, if you've ever thought about eating just chemicals instead of food or anything like that, um, log on to our Facebook page and let us know your thoughts on that um, as we get to it later on today. Uh, but to, for now, we better start with this day in science. Uh, today, of course, being the 17th of February. Um, what's happened on this day in the past? Well, in 1869, um, a certain scientist, in fact, I'm not going to say his name yet. I love the story of this. He cancelled a planned visit to a factory and stayed at home. So what do you do if you decide not to go out one day and stay at home? What do you do? You've watched the telly. 
You, you post might, on Facebook. You post on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. You might do something like that. Yeah. Dmitry Mendeleev decided he was going to arrange the chemical elements in a systematic way. <laughs> that, of course, that's what you do <laughs> when you stay at home. Yeah. Back in 1869, he did this. And to begin with, he uh, wrote each element and its chief properties on a separate card and uh, started arranging them in various patterns. Um, and eventually he achieved a layout that suited him and copied it down on paper. Um, later that day, he then changed his mind again. Um, and decided a better arrangement by properties was possible and made a copy of that, which had similar elements grouped in vertical columns, unlike his first table, which grouped them horizontally. And, of course, these documents mark the beginning of our periodic table as we know it today. Mm. So imagine if he decided to go to the factory, what we would be doing now. <laughs> Do you think he took a photo and posted it to Instagram, you know, check out my new layout type yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. And then when he changed his mind, he's like, oh, I can't believe what I was thinking before, lol. Um, you know, SMH. YOLO. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Also on this day, back in uh, 1911, uh, was the first uh, self-starter for a car, uh, which was based on patented inventions by General Motors engineers Clyde Coleman and Charles Kettering. Um, and that was installed in a Cadillac Um which meant uh, it played a key role in helping uh, General Motors uh, take one step above uh, their competition in Ford, uh, because, of course, Ford had a Model T with a crank starter, which uh, caused its share of broken ribs and jaws. So I think anything avoiding that, it makes life a bit easier. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, the, the effort to crank start. I can't imagine having to do that now, um, crank starting the car in the morning. I mean... If it, You'd almost need to some mornings in Canberra here when it gets down to being super cold. The broken ribs would make your trip to work a little bit more difficult, though. That's true. That's true. That's true. So much easier now. Just turn the key and go. Um, and uh, speaking of modern conveniences, uh, one of the modern appliances that people know and love, the telly. Uh, the first demonstration of colour television. Uh, in fact, it was John Logie Baird's colour television. Um, uh, happened to the public on this day in 1938, uh, transmitted from the Crystal Palace to the Dominion Theatre in London. And uh, finally, on this day in 1996, uh, world chess champion Garry Kasparov defeated Deep Blue, IBM's chess-playing computer, uh, by winning a six-game match 4-2. Um, so I'm, I still think it's pretty impressive that a computer could beat him twice. That's that's not bad. Um but Deep Blue was the uh, one of the second uh, systems that IBM developed, and a, ver- a newer version of Deep Thought, uh, which had its own special purpose hardware. Um, but it actually got me thinking, did you guys see, I think it was last year, um, Watson, who's you know one of the, the much more improved versions of Deep Blue, uh, Watson was one of the IBM computers that they uh, designed to play Jeopardy? Did you guys see this? No. Oh, it was really interesting. They got um, uh, Watson competing against two of the uh, the biggest Jeopardy champions, which is a game show in the US that relies on trivia. Um, it also, sometimes in its clues, they can be a bit cryptic in their nature. Um, it relies on wordplay and that sort of thing. And so they designed this computer and trained it up to think for itself and to be able to search and work out the most likely answer from the question um, based on a whole lot of algorithms. And it was really interesting. There was a, a documentary on the guys that made it and the first time they started playing and the first few rounds it got a couple badly wrong and it wasn't doing very well it wasn't buzzing in quick enough and they're thinking geez we've really stuffed up here what's going on and then suddenly like a human almost it just hit its stride 
and was just blasting the human players out of the water with its questions. And it, and it completely dominated the Jeopardy match. Um, it's like pretty amazing that it can not only guess these things, but do it in real time as quick as the humans. So some pretty awesome uh, computing there. I, I love that there's millions of dollars spent on designing computer games to win games, you know, computers <laughs> to win games, you know. Well, I mean, I suppose... But I like the fact that they let him, like, you think that you're, oh, it's all right, I'm beating the computer, I'm going to beat it, and then, boom, it, it beats you anyway. Oh, maybe that was programmed in to lull the people into uh, a false so, sense of security. Yeah, yeah, security. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But, I mean, you can imagine, you know, when it can start doing stuff like that, how close are we to having a real humanoid robot happening? Crazy. Anyway... <laughs> Let's get out of the robot world now and uh, start looking into the more recent signs and stuff that's been happening this week in the animal world. And, uh, Dan, you've been looking underwater for some uh, interesting things about sea slugs. Yeah, well, I'm a marine biologist by trade. Um, and so when this article came up, um, just on the 13th of this month, actually, I was quite impressed. Um, sea slugs, you know, are like a, a snail that lives underwater without a shell. Um, lots of pretty colours in that. And they have quite interesting mating rituals. Um, and the latest find on sea slugs, um, in this particular this particular breed of sea slug, the um, Chromodorus reticulata, actually has disposable penises. So <laughs> they, they will copulate and the penis will stay erect and just flap around in behind and then eventually they'll just drop it off. Um, and then within 24 hours they can regenerate another two to, two? to copulate again. Why do you need two? Well, just as another spare, I guess. Oh, okay, so you, you can know. drop one off and then go straight away again. Yeah, well, right. not straight away again, but they have the ability to generate another two. Okay. Um, so like a set of teeth. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, sort of like shark's teeth, I guess. They just fall out and they, you know, there's another one straight another behind it. Yeah, mm. they, they likened it to um, using a pacer and pumping the, the pencil lead through, mm-hmm. you know, so it's ready to go straight away. So is there a limit to how many they can regenerate? Well, they, they say three at the moment. That's, that's as many as they've tested because, okay. you know, they'd subject a male to a female, um, even though sea slugs are hermaphroditic, so they can be either or. Um, and then they would remove the female and add another one the next day. And sure enough, here comes another penis. <laughs> um, and what they found really interesting was the outside of the penis has all these barbs on it. So when, when copulation occurs and they withdraw the penis, they actually scrape the sides of the female's uterus out and take all with it all the other sperm from another copulation, from another male, to try and increase the chances of them fertilizing the female's eggs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy indeed. That's so bizarre. Just, they just get more and more weird. See, there's yeah. some sea slugs that actually bite each other's penises off to try and prevent them from copulating and that sort of stuff. So even though they look like this little slummy blob of, of goop on the seafloor, they're actually quite interesting, <laughs> yeah. um, And especially when it comes to sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, is there an advantage to dropping off your penis or...? Um, I don't think they've done that much research. Like I said, yeah. February 13, they've gone, whoa, look at that. They've just dropped their penis off. Yeah. Um, but they think that some, um, most sea slugs will use some sort of plug in the female to prevent other copulations from happening. Uh, okay. And so they think this possibly could be they could you know, copulate and actually drop off and leave the penis inside <laughs> the female so that no one else would get in. Right. Wow. So leaving a cork in there to stop... <laughs> Any other? Yeah, stuff. yeah, and there you know, you f- first time on radio in, in Canberra, and I've said penis and sex so many times on on air already. Right. It's awesome. We're, we're scientific. This is a, a very scientific show. Um, but look, to continue on that vein, I guess um, underwater uh, mating. Well, there's been some uh, recent studies that are 
I think could actually relate to humans quite well about picking up new partners. Um, we had Valentine's Day recently, actually, and I, um, I was very interested to watch a, uh, a speed dating happening down at my local pub. I just happened to go down there for, for a drink with a friend and, and we watched the speed dating. It was very interesting watching the people's behaviours and how they, how they tried to, you know, prom- self-promote themselves to the, the various people that were there and um, what they'd worn and all that. Oh, look, huge psychology study sitting <laughs> right there. Um, but the, the, the study that I'm going to talk about is actually from underwater looking at uh, male guppies. And uh, their way of trying to pick up a new partner was to hang out with ugly friends, um, which would increase their own chances of picking up, <laughs> which is um, quite an odd um, way to do it. But I kind of makes sense. Yeah, because yeah. They're, they're looking better than anyone else. Well, that's with. right. Like, oh, you're the best of a bad batch. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll have to take you. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem overly nice, but I mean, the guppies themselves are um, small, colourful fish anyway, so there's a lot, a lot that they can look at. Um, and uh, females prefer ornate males, um, you know, as you generally do when in the, the animal kingdom, they go for the, the most ornate, the most colourful um, males, because that's generally the strongest um, species, you know, survival of the species, that sort of thing. Um, so what they did uh, in, uh, in the experiments for this, which uh, come from the University of Western Australia, uh, they put a male guppy in a tank and allowed it to choose between two females. Uh, one female was surrounded by colourful males with orange markings covering more than 20% of their body, and the other by drab males with less than 9% orange coloration. And... Uh, the less colourful a male was, the more he gravitated to his drab companions. Um, so males preferred the female to be surrounded by drab males because that felt like that increased their chances of mating. So really interesting. But I think it can relate to humans so, so easily. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you just have to look at weddings. You know, you're not allowed to be more pretty than the bride. Good so she chooses rather plain bridesmaids so, you know. The, the bride looks the best in the ceremony. Mm. And the colours are different as well, so yeah. the dresses. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. true. Although then, um, why are all the males dressed the same <laughs> at the wedding? Like, you've got your, your, your uh, groom and then the, his groomsmen, but they're all the same. Well, you, exactly usually, the there's, same thing. usually there's a different colour tie oh, a slight or you know, a lapel flower right. or something. So, you know. that's, that's true. The, that's the bit of colour. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's that 30% coverage of the orange colour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing about this experiment was um, how the guppies actually worked out who was attractive and who wasn't. And it was all about experience. Um, The team ran the experiment with uh, experienced males, which are those that had grown up in a stock tank with uh, one-to-one sex ratios and were allowed to interact freely with both sexes, and also naive males, which were raised uh, only with females uh, to maintain normal sexual activity during development, but had no visual or physical interaction with other males. And uh, what they found was that naive males who hadn't been surrounded by other men uh, showed no preference whether females were surrounded by drab guppies or colourful male guppies, whereas the ones that had been surrounded by men a lot, they knew which were the good-looking ones, and so they knew who they should be hanging out with to help increase their chances. Crazy. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's that big fish in a little pond scenario there. You know, yeah. I, I think I'm the best, so I don't care where I go, I am going to be the best. That's right, that's right. Whereas the ones that had an experience are like, well, I'm not going to get anything over there. I'm going to go to the ugly males over there, and then I've got a chance. 
<laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if they've then used the same fish in a psychological study on how the fish felt about being chosen as an ugly, as an ugly fish. You know? There's all sorts of animal ethics issues there, isn't there? Definitely. Well, it's do- all in the beholder of the eye, though. Like, you know, what, yeah. who, who's to say that they're more beautiful than they are? Look, maybe we need to start getting some guppy life coaches that can talk so. to those ugly guppies and make them feel better and convince them that they are worthwhile. And then That's put what- them on a show and, and vote. You know who's the prettiest, so that they actually have some sort of cred. I'm sure they all have yeah. other talents. The they bar- must be smart guppies. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can choose that. You know, barrier reefs next top guppy, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Um, and we'll see how they go with that. I think you've got a show in the making there, Martha. <laughs> But we're going to move out of the ocean now um, and to another interesting study, though. Um, not so much about picking up, but about dancing, which is, uh, you know, can be a form of picking up, I guess, depending on how good you are. Um, it can also work in the opposite. But we're looking at mosh pits, aren't we, Sian? Yeah, we are. So my background's in chemistry, but I also quite like music. So when I saw this study, which actually came out on the 11th of February, I thought it was pretty excellent. So anyone who's actually been to a concert before knows that a mosh pit can get pretty hectic. But a couple of research students from Cornell actually went one step further and analysed the movement within the mosh pits, and their results were pretty surprising. So they got a whole bunch of footage from a range of YouTube videos from mosh pits at gigs around the globe, so it wasn't specifically just oriented towards American mosh pits or Australian mosh pits. And Jesse Silverberg and a couple of his research colleagues discovered that when a mosh pit was left to its own devices over a decent period of time, the movement of people within the mosh pit actually was consistent with the movement of particles in an ideal gas. So when we're talking about uh, gas laws, in an ideal situation, particles in a gas move in a continuous random motion, and they only interact with each other when they collide. The people in the mosh pit had the same statistical distribution as the speeds of particles in a gas. And so Silverberg and his colleagues then created a computer program which uh, simulated a mosh pit where they could change certain variables. So the variables included the likelihood of flocking or following other people within the mosh pit and a variable amount of noise or randomness. And they actually attributed this noise to varying levels of drunkenness from all of the moshes. Do we have drunk gas particles generally? You never know. It could be an uh, ethanol particle. Ah, very good. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Depending on the variables uh, used, Silverberg noticed one of two different types of behaviours arising for the mosh pit. Uh, The first is actually they call a mosh pit, uh, which is a disordered state that fits ideal gas laws. Uh, Mosh pits would occur when there's more of the noise term, so more of the randomness, than the flocking. The second behaviour that arose was a circle pit, which was shaped and actually moved almost like a vortex, and occurred uh, when the flocking or the following term was greater than the noise. Uh, Interestingly, the researchers actually believe that this phenomenon is influenced by a range of different factors. Uh, These were particularly loud music, flashing lights, and excessive consumption of alcohol. Uh, In the past, there's been research done on other movements of large groups of people, such as pedestrians forming a single lane, bottlenecks in panicked escape, and uh, even large Mexican waves. (laughs) (laughs) I love 
love Mexican waves. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Who knew you could do scientific studies on them? Actually, I tried something on the weekend. I was down in Sydney for the colour run, and they were doing a Mexican wave down this whole street of people starting a race, and we tried a slow-motion Mexican wave, mm. which was really cool. And then as it about got about halfway, they started a fast Mexican wave to catch up to the slow Mexican wave. And like the the inner scientist in me was just did going, they reinforce they were kind of, the the fast one hit the slow one and then it just went all fast they just joined together and went even it's faster brilliant. I think so yeah I was once um, at the Olympics with my family and I love Mexican waves and I've never been actually able to do one properly like in public and um and I saw the Mexican wave going around the stadium and I was like oh yes yes it's gonna come and then I dropped a piece of rubbish or something and I bent down to pick it up and I came back up again and my sister goes you just missed the Mexican wave and I go whatever and she goes look and it would just pass me I was like no no. (laughs) I want chance and I'm just because I was you know doing the right thing and picking up a piece of rubbish (laughs) the the yeah the really cool thing about this research is that um, because the mosh pit movement has been shown to correlate so closely with the ideal gas laws, uh, this actually hasn't happened for much of the other research that's been done on big movements of people. So as well as this being ridiculously awesome, it could have a range of future uses. Uh, The researchers believe that knowing the movement of large groups could possibly help in better crowd control, for example, riots and big panicked crowds, and lead toward better infrastructure that could help protect people at large-scale events, which, you know, is all pretty cool for some research that started at a heavy metal concert. Yeah, Yeah. I think it's pretty amazing um, that, you know, these tiny little particles that just float around in the air around us follow the same behaviour as, or we follow the same behaviour as them, as giant humans. Yeah, I mean, it kind Bunch of, of sheep. Make, yeah, well, but it, I suppose it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because in a mosh pit, there's probably not too much thought going on in terms of your movement, and I can't imagine the gases would be thinking too much about the way they move either. <laughs> What do you think? I, I just think it sounds like scientists have sat down and gone, okay, we want to go to this concert. How can we get it as a tax reduction? <laughs> I know, we're going to do some research there. Apparently yeah. how it started was the guy who did the research, Jesse Silverberg, took his girlfriend to a concert and because he didn't want her to be in the middle of the mosh pit because he was like, oh, she's going to get hurt. So they stood off to the side and he was standing there and was watching the crowd instead of watching the gig apparently. And he was like, oh, my God. Look how they're moving. Let's see if there's some physics in this. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. I do like that. Forever a scientist, isn't it? <laughs> no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, you're always thinking in scientific terms. I, I wonder. I wonder how he deals with anomalies. Like I'm really tall. I'm six foot eight, or two meters and four centimeters in the in the new system. And there's always this massive space behind me because no one can stand behind me because I can't see. So I wonder how he deals with those sort of issues. You know, does the ideal gas law allow for for large molecules? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You'd just be another variable in there. Uh, Either that or an outlier, and he'd just go, "No, nah, I'm not going to count him." <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM 2XX Community Radio. And uh, if you are listening to us, it's great to like us on our Facebook page so you can interact with us, tell us what you think, ask any questions on there. And I have to give a big shout-out to uh, Mitchell Crouch, who became our 100th liker on the Facebook page. We have Yay. reached 100 likes. Yeah, woo! <laughs> so you can help push us above 100 now and uh, into 200. So jump on Facebook and like us there. Just search for Fuzzy Logic, and we're the one with the lovely autumn leaf on it. Uh, so you can follow us on there and uh, find out what's going on on the show 
and uh, interact with us there too. But for now, we're going to change tack a little bit and we're going into something that's been in the news a lot lately uh, with the Australian Crime Commission and the sports doping and Lance Armstrong Tour de France talking about EPO, Martha. Yes, I thought just as you said it was all in the media that give a bit of a look at it. So do you guys know what EPO is? I, I assume it stands for something. Um, but I don't actually know what it stands for, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's, um, well, I meant actually, do you know what it is though? The Oh, what it actually does? does. Yeah. No. No? No. 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 All right. So, um, which I think is interesting because of the fact that it's so in the media in your face, but no one actually knows, or not everybody, um, knows what it is. So it's actually a natural occurring hormone that's secreted by the kidney and um, the purpose of the hormone is to regulate the production of red blood cells in the bone marrow when the blood oxygen is low and stimulate bone marrow to produce more red blood cells, which increases the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. So basically, lots of people are using this, uh, the endurance sports, um, are using it to as a way of uh, increasing their oxygen intake. Because yeah. um, often sports people will go up to like high altitudes and do that sort of training to, to achieve a similar sort of thing in a, in a legal way. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. So they'll go up at a higher altitude where the air is thin and then they have to adapt their bodies to get the uh, blood taking in the oxygen. And then when they go down to the normal or the lower altitude, then their body's adapted and can more efficiently take up the oxygen. Hmm. Um, however, they've started using this uh, EPO injecting because... Um, it's a far easier and a cleaner way, I suppose, of doing it. However, it is very illegal. Yeah. Um, so quite dirty, really. Yes, it is dirty. It's not really clean at all. <laughs> um, it was first um, artificially designed in 1989 to help people with kidney diseases who were chronically anemic. Um, and since then, it's been used for a number of other medical uses, such as cancer, HIV, um, and for surgery, both pre and post, to reduce the need um, for blood transfusion. Um, and, uh, so yeah, basically people are just, um, mostly endurance athletes again, so that they can get uh, more oxygen. Um, and this means that they can now have a higher rate of aerobic respiration, which means that more oxygen is around the body, uh, and they can go for longer. And the body uses the initial glycogen, glycogen stores first by burning up the fat and reducing the proportion, the production of lactic acid, which will cause fatigue. And they also believe that it increases the um, metabolism and uh, healing process of the muscles because the extra red blood cells also carry more oxygen, but also the nutrients. Um, and the fact that they've got away with it is because it is naturally occurring in the body. Um, and also because primarily they were looking at testing the urine, but now, um, you know, and not blood because it won't show up unless you're doing the blood. But now um, they are, since 2000, they're using both blood and urine samples. Um, and prior to this, they were comparing it to normal levels, um, which, you know, to, to highlight whether they were possible cheats or not. But, yeah. but what is normal, really? Mm, you know? Well, that's right. Maybe uh, that's that's what I find it quite interesting. And, in fact, we've had um, Elise on the Facebook page has clarified that EPO is uh, erythropoietin. Um, that's what that stands for. Um, mm. So thanks, Elise, for that one. Um, but the, the, what you're saying there about the EPO, um, sound, it all sounds reasonably natural to me. 
like, you know, steroids and those sorts of things seem to be, I, I don't know much about them, it always seems to be unnatural, whereas the EPO seems to be promoting a, a process that occurs naturally in the body and, you know, we can replicate it. So, yeah, that's I right. I mean, w- w- is there any thoughts as to why it might be illegal? Can it be pushed too far if we take uh, too much yes, EPO? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are major side effects. In some cases okay. there have been deaths. Um, wow. um but it because in- what it will do is increase the thickness of the blood, and therefore um, it increases your risk of heart attack and stroke. Um, your blood pressure obviously is heightened, um, and people have like after injecting themselves um, have found that they've had flu-like symptoms such as um, bone aches and uh, fever, shiverings. Um, it can have liver and pancreatic um, damage because you know of the blood too much. Um, and it also can um, develop lymphatic and liver cancers, and you can have skin reactions to the injection, like swelling, like you normally would with um, an allergy maybe. Yeah. There's seizures and nausea, headache, anxiety, and feeling of tired. So, that, yeah. It's, that doesn't sound so good. They're not so good, yeah. no. <laughs> do, do you happen to know if it causes um, testicular cancer at all? I don't know that. Don't know. No, sorry. Right. Interesting. Why, why do you ask that? Oh, I'm just thinking of uh, a certain cyclist that oh, uh, right. may yes, have sure. uh, taken EPO. Uh, yes. uh, just looking at that. But yeah, no, I mean, okay, so well, that makes it sound yeah. a lot less attractive now and a lot less natural than, mm. it, than it sounded before. Yeah. But I guess you just weigh up how much you want to win. You know, like athletes do a <laughs> lot to want to win. You know, they, they live crazy lifestyles and do excessive amounts of, of training in that. So they might go, well, I might have a fever headache today, but tomorrow I'll win a gold medal. Um, and then six years down the track, it'll be picked up and they'll get stripped of that gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, very interesting stuff happening in the bloodstream. And I think all the drugs are interesting, um, especially now that everyone's talking about it in sport. Um, you know, what is a legal drug and what is an illegal drug? Um, in sport because there's you know so many people that self-medicate with things like caffeine and um, and you know, those sorts of drugs which are perfectly True. legal at the moment but you know how, how are we going to draw that line as, as people start trying more and more stuff to, to get especially when stronger? it's so hard to detect I suppose like and yeah. also like the difference between EPO and say other performance enhancing drugs is that you don't get the the visual like it doesn't actually change your body shape or yeah yeah it's more just the insides behind the scene yeah Mm. very interesting i had heard calls for a um uh two olympics now that you know it's come out that almost every athlete's taking drugs that sort of thing you know maybe the the drug free olympics like they normally are and then the drug olympics where everyone's (laughs) just just injected as much as they can to see how fast and hard they can go and how strong how much they can lift and that sort of thing I'm not sure what it's necessarily the best idea, but I, I it does. I kind of like the idea, not so much for the lifting. I think for the running, like just to, to see, see just how, how fast, fast can someone go. can go, how fast you can push your body. What do you reckon? Dan? Well, we we sort of get that already, don't we? Like Marion Jones was the fastest woman on the planet for a stage until they picked up that she was a drug che- drug cheat. True. Um, and I mean, you say in Bolt. He's very fast. <laughs> uh, I'm not. I'm not going to point any fingers, but it will be interesting to see what happens ten years down the track. I yeah. hope for his sake that he's not. 
yeah. because he is incredible. Mm. Um, but it would be it would be interesting to see if we could find athletes to go. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, my career is coming to the end, or I'm in the peak of my career. Let's see how fast I can go yeah. and as inject me. As long as there's me. no fatalities. Yes, well, I, I suppose that is why we ban drugs in the first place. Is is because they Safety. can be very mm. harmful and and yeah. uh, start uh, permanently harming people. Uh, and even causing death so it would be something to watch but it certainly would be interesting to see just how far the human body could be pushed, pushed yeah. Um, yeah. because we, we I mean you think surely we're reaching the limits of it now um, you know people but people keep going faster they keep breaking world records well, well, that's it. And, you know, to go from, like, talking about swimming, um, to go from the razor suits and, and they set all those really fast times and then, you know, like Magnuson beat the the fastest time without a razor suit. So you yeah. sort of go, they're using all this technology to try and get faster and faster and faster and yet it's just the human body doing what it does best mm. yeah. um, that can actually set the times. Yeah. You know. Impressive. Well, hopefully. I, I like the idea of natural human body just being the best out there and... And we can cause that to happen ourselves. I think it'll be good. But anyway, we're going to move on from uh, blood doping now to a, a different type of, uh, well, rather than in blood injection, blood sucking, I suppose. Yeah, um, I was reading on on Science Online and um, talking about mosquitoes and no one really likes mosquitoes. Um, I was telling my housemate this last night, and he's like, so how can we get it to destroy mosquitoes? But um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, I'm coming from Queensland where mosquitoes are, are quite prevalent. Um, they're always around, regardless of what the weather is. And have you ever thought about how mosquitoes get through rain? Um, you they know, just, do they like, I don't know. You know, do they, do they, have, do they have a radar that they can just pick up? Oh, incoming raindrop, you know, yeah, via left. Um, and so these scientists actually reconstructed a rainstorm in a box and put a whole heap of mosquitoes in there and, and timed it and, and did it, um, recorded it on time-lapse photography so they could see um, what happened. Um, and they found that mosquitoes actually go with the flow when it comes to being hit by a raindrop because... A mosquito being hit by a raindrop is like a human being hit by a bus. Um, and what they do is they just relax their body and roll up the side of the raindrop and pull off just before it hits the ground. And so they actually ride the raindrop, um, wow, which is interesting because so cool. they did some did some studies. And in, in science history up to, to February, they noted that fleas were the, the insect that could withstand the most G-force, which was 130 Gs, 130 times the force of gravity. Wow. Um, they noticed that mosquitoes are actually um, withstanding 300 Gs when they get hit by a raindrop wow. and, and just oh go goodness. with the flow and, yeah, pull off. So that's why there's always mosquitoes around when the, when the rain's coming down. So do you know if anything like this has been done with any other insects like like fleas or small flies or anything, how they cope with rain? Well, what they've done is they've actually furthered the study into how other flying insects cope, um, and they see that there's a, a huge way up between how well you can deal with rain and how well you can deal with wind, because something like a horsefly is, is heavier and so therefore is fine in the wind but can't deal with rain the same way. And so if it, when it's raining, you notice that the flies all head undercover because they can't deal with the rain as well. Whereas when it's really windy, they can withstand the, the wind, but the, the um, mosquitoes can't because they're too light, and so they just get blown around. Um, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really interesting to see how mosquitoes dealt with raindrops. You know? <laughs> hmm. Something that you don't really think about, really. No. No. You know, you just, you should, yeah. 
it's raining, oh well, you don't think about the small little creatures. <laughs> I do like the idea of surfing the raindrop though and like kind of moving around it. And I, then I, what happens when it hits the ground though? <laughs> well, they, they actually. Or do they can, jump to another? They can actually rain. pull off. So, oh, yeah. you know, rain is not steady. They're not just no. going to jump from one rain drop no. to another. You know, not like Mario Brothers or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, they can actually pull off in time before they hit the ground. Okay. And then wow. catch another one. No, just keep flying until they get hit by another, another one. one. Okay. And then they do the same thing. Ah, mm, fantastic. Wow. Mm. Awesome. All right. Well, we might um, have a little break from talking for a sec. And uh, we've got our... Um, New Fuzzy Logic segment, do try this at home. So let's have a listen to that and then we'll have a bit of music and we'll be coming back talking about food and uh, how food uh, could change. Some new ideas on food. So all that coming up and more here on Fuzzy Logic. Experiment. Discover. Explore science. Do try this at home. On Fuzzy Logic. Well, it's time for another Do Try This at Home on Fuzzy Logic. Hi, I'm Broderick, and today we are going to make some of our own slime. That's right, ooey, gooey, sticky, icky slime. Now, to try today's experiment, you're going to need a bowl, a spoon, some water, some food dye. Today I'm using green food dye, but any colour can work. And you'll also need some corn flour. Now you need to make sure you get corn flour that's actually made out of corn, not wheat and corn flour, as you can sometimes find in the shops. And then we're going to combine all these ingredients to make our slime. The first thing you'll need to do is take your bowl and your corn flour and pour the corn flour into the bowl. You can pour quite a bit of it in there. In fact, you know, it depends on the size of the bowl as to how much slime you want to make. Today, I'm using a whole packet of corn flour. Once you've got that in there, you need to take your food dye and add it to your water before you put it in with the corn flour. So, a couple drops in the water, and uh, then give it a little stir with your spoon. So it's all mixed up. Fantastic. Now, hold on to your spoon, because we're going to slowly pour our coloured water into the corn flour, just a little bit at a time. And as we pour it in, we just, just gently mix it with the spoon, so that you're starting to make it form a fluid. Okay. That's looking pretty good. A little bit more water. What you want is a consistency that's similar to thick pancake batter. Once you've got it at that consistency, that's looking about right. It might take a little bit of fiddling with the water, but hopefully you can have your slime looking like thick pancake batter. And then, once it's all mixed together and the cornflowers got lots of water in it, you can dip your fingers in very slowly and lift it up and feel that ooey gooey slime dripping all over your fingers. You might want some paper towel at this point too to wipe your fingers once you're done. The really interesting thing about this slime is that it can behave differently 
if we do some different stuff to it. So now what I want you to do is take your hand out of the slime and make a fist. And providing your fist will fit in your slime bowl, I want you to give your slime a quick punch in out, just a big punch like that. If we'd filled this bowl with just water and you punched it, you'd expect the water to splash everywhere. And slimes are fluid, just like water. So you'd expect the slime to do the same thing, wouldn't you? But in fact, if we have a look when we punch our slime, it doesn't splash at all. In fact, it goes kind of hard, as though you're punching a wall or concrete or something like that. So how can our ooey-gooey slime go hard? Well, it's all because slime is a special type of fluid, and we call it a fixotropic fluid. This means that, unlike water, slime can change its viscosity based on whether a force is put on it, and slime will get thicker or more viscous when we put a hard force on it. So when we punch the slime, we put a big force, and the slime goes hard. But if we dip our fingers in slowly, the slime remains a fluid and is all ooey-gooey slimy. Now this is really useful, and scientists have used this property of slime in a variety of ways. Some scientists are developing a speed bump that when you go over it at the right speed, you don't put too much force on. And so the speed bump is nice and smooth and you don't feel it at all. But if you're going too fast, you put a force on the speed bump and it becomes hard, like our hard slime, and you feel the bump telling you to slow down. Another interesting application is in bulletproof vests. Often these can be quite bulky and difficult to get around with. But by using a thixotropic fluid, it means that when you're walking around, the vest fluid can flow and move about, so it's really easy to move in. But then when a bullet comes and smashes into the bulletproof vest, the fluid goes hard and strong and protects you from the bullet. So there you go. A very interesting fluid that you can make right in your own home. So why don't you grab some cornflour, water and food dye and try and make your own slime today and see how hard it feels when you try and punch it. That's all for our slimy do try this at home. We'll catch you next time on Fuzzy Logic. Broderick here in the studio with Martha, Sian and Dan and we're getting to the big topic of the day which is uh, not toxic but uh, very chemical based and talking about food. Uh, we asked the question on Facebook earlier if you'd consider eating a chemical smoothie instead of food, and Mitchell posted about a guy who'd eaten uh, monkey chow as an alternative to an actual diet, which uh, we had a read of the diary. Sounds a bit interesting. Um, but we've got someone in the US who's tried it in a slightly different way. Um, they had a look at a diet and, and about what's recommended for you to eat, and um, you know you should have certain amounts of certain things. And they basically went, well, why do I need to bother eating food to get it, which has a lot of waste and extra stuff in it? Why don't I just get those chemicals and mix it up into my own smoothie? So that's what this guy did. He's like, you know, it's going to save so much time in cooking. It's going to save so much time in shopping once you've got it all. And uh, so much time in eating. You just drink a smoothie three times a day that has all your bodily requirements. Um, you know, interesting idea. It's got stuff in it like... Uh, 
uh, carbohydrates. Um, so this is based on uh, the FDA in the uh, US over there and their bodily requirements. So he's got 200 grams of carbohydrates per day, uh, 50 grams of protein, 65 grams of fat, so he's actually got fat in there because this isn't a diet shake or anything like that. This guy's not trying to lose weight. He's just trying to maintain normal body weight uh, but without food. Uh, so things like... Um, so the fats in there actually help absorb vitamins and that sort of thing. So we do need fats in our diet. Um, so he's got 65 grams of fat but no cholesterol in there. Um, he's taking out cholesterol. Uh, so they're the main things. And then he's got a whole lot of little different things uh, to small levels like uh, two and a half grams of sodium three and a half grams of potassium um, which interestingly um, is uh, quite a large amount of potassium not an amount we normally get Um, one of the biggest sources of potassium for people is bananas Um, but to get three and a half grams of banana of potassium you need to eat about seven bananas a day which is just ridiculous um insane (laughs) yeah so and expensive if you have those uh problems with getting bananas again (laughs) exactly exactly so you know there's a lot of things in here that we probably don't get enough of anyway um but by regulating it in this set um methodical way you get the you know things like there's fiber calcium iron phosphorus iodine magnesium and then there's rarer metals that you know, we probably get in trace amounts through our food, um, but we still need them. Things like uh, manganese, uh, selenium, um, molybdenum, uh, you know, and these are elements that are used in, in small quantities to help us with uh, uh, enzymes in our bodies, uh, for amino acids that come from our glands, uh, Copper, uh, we have two milligrams of copper in the diet that's used for electron and oxygen transport within your body. Um, what else have we got? And all the different vitamins A, vitamin B6, B12, C, D, E, K, thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, folate, biotin, and pantothenic acid. Um, they're all the ingredients basically that uh, this guy considered were um, vital to survival. Um, and then he also included things like uh, lycopene, um, which is uh, an antioxidant, uh, really good for you, found in uh, uh, red plants like tomatoes and uh, black carrots. For long-time fuzzy listeners, you would have heard us talk about lycopenes in uh, black carrots, which are pretty awesome for you. Uh, and then there's other stuff, omega-3 fatty acids, ginseng, ginkgo bilboa, vanadium, and uh, lutein and alpha-carotene that he added as well. Now... You mix all this together in water, clean water. What do you think you get? Something pretty Brown. Hot? Brown. Oh, yeah. it tastes <laughs> terrible. Well, that's what you'd think. And, and I would have thought the same thing too. But the guy that's done this experiment, uh, he said uh, he was expecting it to taste pretty horrible. He ended up with a thick, odorless beige liquid. A beige, mm. not a colour you want to be eating generally. Um, he held his nose when he first tried it and lifted it to his mouth and... It was delicious. Yeah. Yeah. He actually said it was, he felt, after drinking it, he felt like he just had the best breakfast of his life. Tasted like a sweet, succulent, hearty meal in a glass, which is really what it is. Like it's everything, the exact amount that your body would actually need for a meal in a glass. You swallow it all together really quickly. So So where's he getting all the chemicals from? Uh, he had to source them um, from a variety of places. Some of them you can just get down your local uh, pharmacist, mm-hmm. um, but others he had to go through uh, chemical suppliers um, that you know supply chemicals to laboratories and that sort of thing. Um, 
And for like for various compounds, like for example, potassium is a really reactive on its own. So he used potassium gluconate um, instead, which is a, a potassium compound. Um, and he did that for a few different things uh, so that he could get them. Um, but, you know, the levels for some of these things like are in the milligram, microgram amounts. So, you know, some very small amounts of it. Um, and uh, he so also, was he buying them in bulk so he, that he, he'd save money or? <laughs> yeah, well, he was because some of them you can only get in bulk. I mean, when you only need 150 micrograms of iodine for each dose, you know, that's not much at all. So no. he'd buy them in, in bulk amounts um, and they'd last a while. Um, and in fact, he did a, um, a money study of this and found that um, compared to, now this is uh, a US study, um, so this guy would spend about $470 on food uh, a month, which would include groceries and eating out. Um, the average American spends $604 a month on food. Um, and so by doing this study, he reduced it down to $50 a month. Wow. With the chemicals, once he purchased the bulk amounts and that sort of thing, it worked out to be $50 a month. Uh, now, he's actually named his uh, little smoothie Soylent. Uh, of course, uh, the good old Soylent, Soylent Green. Green is good. Yeah, which is the uh, the human. I haven't seen the movie, but it's humans, isn't it? Soylent Green. Yeah. Yeah, it's made from humans, I think, if I remember rightly. Um, I, it's, it's a movie reference there, but he's called his little mix Soylent. Um and he seems to be going all right on it. Um, there were some teething issues. Like for the first month, he forgot uh, iron. So, of course, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Hemoglobin issues, uh, energy level dropping. Um, and that was day three. He could have just put some EPO in. You know? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but he did, he, once he realised he'd missed out iron in the initial recipe, he um, added the iron in um, on day four. Um, and then started getting better again and feeling much more normal. Um, but there were some really interesting things, like uh, he noticed these cravings and tastes closely matched his needs. So one day he accidentally put in a tablespoon of salt rather than a teaspoon and immediately noticed the mixture tasted not just salty but really unpleasantly salty. Um, and then when he ha- was deficient of iron, he felt a really strong craving for red meat. Um, so, you know, whether his body's starting to respond better and he can actually start reading your body. Um, this guy also started uh, running more and running further. Um, I don't know how scientific it was before, but he said he, he'd only really run a mile nonstop before. And uh, by the end of a few weeks, he was running seven miles quite easily uh, wow. with no real issue. So huge changes. He wasn't losing that much weight overall but he was getting fitter and healthier just by eating these good um these chemical foods is it something you guys would do if you could just eat chemicals rather than um actual food would you do it i i wouldn't i'm a textures person so you know just having that slimy (laughs) mixture for every day i I need my texture somehow so maybe i could make something that didn't have any calories in it that i could just chew on or something yeah you know I reckon I'd try it. Yeah. I'm not sure if I could go my entire life, you know, <laughs> surviving on just this weird sort of beige smoothie. But, yeah. I, you know, it's, it sounds like it's good for you. And if it doesn't taste too bad, then why not try, I suppose? Yeah, yeah I'd be up for it if I think more studies. I'm a bit sceptical of chemicals. Like I'd mm. prefer the more natural. But, 
if it works and you're saving yeah. time and you don't have to cook and all that kind of thing. And but you're saving yeah. money, so... Yeah, that's yeah. important too. Well, it's interesting you say, like, you prefer the, the natural... Because the, I think that's what I like about this diet is it's taken all the chemicals that we do get naturally from uh, fruit and veg and that sort of thing, and they're still chemicals, and it's just got the the um, the synthesised versions of these chemicals instead um, to see how they go, um, which is a really different sort of way of doing it. Um, but, I mean, it would save you heaps of time. The mm. amount of time you spend shopping for food. Thinking prepare, about what Thinking to about food, yeah, <laughs> preparing it. Um, and the, the thing I actually like about it too is when you think about um, the social implications because food is a big part of what we do as people. That's, you know, you meet someone for coffee, you go out for dinner. That's, that's what you do as a person. But, so now we'll meet for smoothies? <laughs> well, no, the thing is you can still meet and go out for dinner and enjoy it. You just wouldn't have your smoothie that night. And so it can change the way you eat in that just like some people with alcohol are social drinkers. They don't drink by themselves, but when they're out with friends, they might have a glass of wine or something like that. You can become a social eater. And then when you're at home, you normally just have your smoothies and exist on that, and that's fine. But then when you go out, you can enjoy a good meal and, and not have your smoothie that night and, uh, and then go back to it the next day. So if you went out too often, like if you went out for a couple of nights in a row, do you think you'd find yourself suddenly lacking in certain vitamins and minerals that you should be taking in with the smoothie? Well, I don't think so because I think our body would have, uh, like our body isn't designed to necessarily operate on optimal conditions all the time. Because if you have a think about like some nights you might eat out a few times or one day you might go for Maccas uh, and you know, and then have a terrible dinner as well because you're away from home and you're eating out lots. And then your body kind of copes when you go for a salad the next day um, to, to even it all out. So I reckon it could possibly even out if you only, you know, even if you did eat out a couple of nights in a row, um, your body would then get the nutrition and uh, vitamins from the smoothie the following days. Yeah, that makes sense. I'd like to see him in, in expand his... His product, you know, make Soylent for pregnant women and Soylent for growing teens and Soylent for the elderly and, you know, because so, we all have different requirements and, and what we need. So it would be interesting to see what he did there. Yeah, well, cool. that's the thing. He did start playing with a lot of the um, the vitamin levels and the, the specific levels of stuff. And uh, when he, you know, wanted to build up his muscle a bit more, he increased the protein levels. And when he wanted to go for a longer run, he'd increase his carbohydrates and that sort of thing. So you could definitely play with it to make it more suitable for certain people, certain conditions, and that sort of thing. I wonder if he showed up on the FBI watch list for terrorism, you know, all these kind of things <laughs> one house. You know? Definitely. Mm. It would be interesting. I'd love to try it at home. I'm going to post the link for this up on our Fuzzy Logic page after today's show. Uh, so, listeners, you can find out about it yourself and do some research. Um, unfortunately, the guy is offering free samples, which is a good thing, but unfortunately he is in the US. Um, so I don't know if he'll send them out to Australia, but it might be something worth um, looking at, worth trying. Um, and the other thing I love about this guy is he's actually done it using a scientific method. Like he's gone out and got himself tested before um, by doctors and followed protocols and then uh, gone through and tried it. So it's a, it's a very interesting read and I'd encourage you all to have a read and have a think about it and a look at it. Um, and one of my favourite facts from the whole thing was uh, the fact that because he was only drinking smoothies, uh, as he slowly went through his diet, he ended up not needing to poop at all because he had no waste products coming from these chemicals. It was all, most yeah. of it was getting absorbed in his body. And so again, he'll save more time, even more. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and the money from buying toilet paper. And, oh. 
Indeed, indeed. So on that lovely note, we should probably finish off Fuzzy Logic for the day. We've gone over time already. Um, but thanks very much for joining me in the studio, guys. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Sian. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. I hope you've all enjoyed your first time here on Fuzzy Logic. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show too today, listeners. Uh, make sure you tune in again same time next week for more Science on a Sunday. <laughs>